shepherds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and talked. That was just a beautiful time of worship and singing, wasn't it? Uh, man, thank you. Aaron, thanks, man, wherever you are. Um, hey, so uh, we're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount, and um, I've spent a lot of time in, in, in fear and trepidation and prayer um, over these last two messages. So last week we talked about lust and, and adultery, and, and that was really easy. So we decided to build on that, and now we're going to talk about divorce and remarriage and, and oaths. And so um, did you come to hear from the Lord today? I hope you did, um, because as much as I've wrestled with this passage, I, I feel like there's freedom that Jesus wants to bring, okay? And um, as Isaiah said, my prayer has been all along that I would have the tongue of one instructed that I might have a word for the wounded today, okay? And so that's my heartbeat. Jesus, um, would, you, would you help us as we wrestle with your scriptures and your words? Lord, I, I pray against the enemy's voice of condemnation in the hearts and minds of your people here today. God, that, that they might not confuse condemnation with the conviction that your spirit wants to bring because of your kindness that leads us to repentance and to life. So Lord, let us not confuse the enemy's condemnation with your conviction. We want your words over our hearts and our lives that we might walk in your life and in your freedom. And all God's people said... Amen. The year was 1773, and there were boats sitting in the Boston Harbor, Griffin's Wharf, just waiting to bring in 342 chests of British tea. You know the story? where roughly a hundred colonists jumped onto those boats and they unloaded over the next three hours 90,000 pounds of tea into the Boston Harbor. It was the first act of defiance that the British colon or that the American colonists perpetrated against uh, the motherland of Great Britain. And it effectively began the Revolutionary War. That war commenced a year later, but it was that act of, of um, we don't want any taxation without representation, so we're going to throw your tea into the ocean. It was that act that began that war that we celebrated the victory of on the 4th of July. And we celebrated by blowing stuff up to the glory of God, didn't we? I mean, nothing quite says we love our freedom like lighting stuff on fire and blowing it up. Praise Jesus, land of the free, home of the brave, right? And I started to wrestle with this idea this week of freedom, because oftentimes we think something will bring freedom and it doesn't. And sometimes we think things will bring freedom and they actually bring confinement. I think of that smartphone we hold in our pockets, so many of us. I remember the time, the day I got that, I thought, oh my goodness, this is going to save me so much time. 
I'll be able to work everywhere now. And you know what happened? I started working everywhere. Anybody else wonder where all that time went that we were saving? Like, so some inventions, some things that we invite into our life, we think are going to bring us freedom and they actually bring confinement. Some of them are just neutral. But oftentimes we, we get that story wrong. And Jesus in the Gospel of John wants to speak into that in our lives. And, and here's what he says about freedom, because he knows that the human soul is longing for freedom, and he also knows that he's the God that designed us to walk in freedom, and he knows the pathway to it. And so here's what he says. He says to the Jews, the, the people, the disciples who believed in him, Jesus said, if you, what, say it with me, church, hold to. So in some translations will say, obey, if you obey my teaching. So not just you admire it and you go, I agree, I agree that we should love our enemies. Jesus goes, that's great, but do you? And those who hold to my teachings, you really are my disciples. You're my apprentices. You're learning to live in my way with my heart. And then you will know the, the truth. Do you know the, the truth Jesus talks about, the truth Jesus teaches, is something you only know when you start to live it out. It's something you only know when you put it into practice. We can read about it all we want in the scriptures and we can know it intellectually, but we only know it when we start to live it out. Because then you'll know the truth. You'll know that this is the way that I've designed life to work. Life is way better when you forgive people that wrong you than carrying the bitterness. He goes, that's true. Just try it. You'll figure it out, right? And he goes, and the truth will set you what? Free. Free. So freedom, according to Jesus, isn't the ability to do anything we want whenever we want with whomever we want, right? Truth, according to Jesus, freedom, according to Jesus, is the ability to become his disciple, to learn to live in his way with his heart, and so align ourselves with the way that he's designed the world to function. And we push back against that freedom all the time, almost every day, by thinking, listen, I think Jesus... You were a little bit off your rocker when you talked about this one. I think I know a better way. But what he gently does is he pushes back and he says, no, 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 no. True freedom, true freedom is found in healthy limits rather than infinite options. True freedom is found in healthy limits rather than infinite options. A number of years ago, they did a study where they took a preschool teacher and a number of her students out, and they took them to two different playgrounds on two different days. The first playground had no fences around it. And you know what happened? All those kids started to play, but they only played in proximity to their teacher. They wanted to stay close. They wanted to be able to, to get back to her in case anything went wrong. They wanted to be able to touch her and... And a fenceless playground actually led to a confined playing. <laughs> they took them the next day, they took them to a playground that had, same size playground, but had a fence around the outside. And you know what happened? The kids ran all the way up to the fence. They used the entire playground. They used the whole thing because they knew, oh, we're safe. We're, we're protected. We have, some, we have some limits. And actually, did you know that limits actually bring life? We think they bring confinement. We think they put us in a jail. But actually what Jesus says is the right limits actually lead to our life. 
And if you just open up your Bible and you start reading in Genesis chapter 1, and I'd encourage you to do this sometime throughout this week, look at one of the very first acts God does. He creates and he says it's good, but then what does he do? He starts to set limits, right? He separates the darkness from the light. He says to the ocean, to the sea, you can only go this far. And then we have land. What is that? Those are limits. Those are limits that lead us to life. And did you know that that God has wired us for limits? He's put it in our DNA, in in the fabric and fiber of our very being. But we oftentimes push back against that. And so I want to explore this paradoxical truth, this ironic truth that true freedom is found in healthy limits rather than infinite options. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to give two back-to-back teachings about healthy limits that lead to freedom and life and good that sort of go against the grain of our humanity. So if you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 5, that's where we're going to be camping out today, Matthew chapter 5 Starting in verse 31, here's what Jesus says. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, so... Let's just take a moment and take a deep breath, okay? Because I'm well aware that this issue of divorce is one of immense pain. That every single person in this room has been touched by it in some way, some shape, some form. It might be firsthand where you've been divorced. It might be in your family where your parents got divorced or grandparents or somebody in your your line or, or it's a friend. But we've all, we've all been touched by this in some way. And there's pain around that. And I just want you to know that Jesus' words are are not intended to be cold. They're not intended to be lifeless. They're not intended to just be a law or a rule where we go, okay, I get that. Jesus is actually, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's entering into a conversation that's been going. The context, here's the context. He says, it's been said. Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now, if you're taking notes, I would just write down in your note sheet, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, because that's what Jesus is doing. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 24, 1. And here's why Moses gave that command to Israel. If you divorce your wife, you've got to give her a certificate of divorce. It was actually really, really gracious Because back in ancient Near East culture and Babylonian culture and all the cultures that surrounded the Israelite people, a man could divorce his wife, basically just say, I'm out of here, divorce his wife, go to another town, get a different job, start a new family. And if he wanted to, within five years of divorcing her, he could come back and take her back as his wife. He would have the quote unquote right to do that. And so Moses goes, there's something wrong with that. God goes, that that doesn't make sense. If you're going to divorce your wife, you must give her a certificate of divorce so that she can move on. It's not fair to have her sitting around waiting five years. Okay, finally, now I'm free. That doesn't make sense, Moses says. And so 
God gave them the provision of divorce and a divorce certificate. Look at it with me. Here's what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. There's a whole discussion that goes on after that, but this is the main idea of what Jesus is talking about. So he quotes this passage, but he does it knowing that in the first century and in the century preceding that, there's been a massive discussion in the culture about divorce. And there was this line of thinking. It was by, uh, perpetrated by a rabbi named Hillel. Will you say that with me? Hillel. And Hillel was a famous sort of rock star rabbi, and he had a large following. And what he said when he talked about Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, was displeasing and indecent. Those mean anything that your wife does that you don't like. So if she burns the toast, you can say, you know what? Here's a certificate of divorce. And this, this happened, right? If, if you didn't like her looks anymore, you could give her a certificate of divorce. You're out of there. No big deal. And this line of thinking had a massive following during Jesus' day. And here's the problem with that. A divorced woman had three options, and really only three. She could go and live with a, a wealthy family member or maybe her parents. She could move back in with her, in, with her parents. Uh, she could get remarried, and many, many, many women did in this day and culture, but it was almost as though they entered into this marriage and it was, it was tainted. It was seen as sort of second class or, or she could become a prostitute. She had to make money somehow. And a lot of commentators say when Jesus says you force her to commit adultery, that's what he's talking about. She's got to go, quote unquote, work the streets because she has to make ends meet somehow. So this was Hillel's teaching. He said, listen, there any cause, any cause for divorce, burn the toast, divorce. Don't like her looks anymore, divorce. It doesn't matter if she violates the marriage covenant. If you don't like her anymore, you can divorce her. Well, there's this other rabbi who came after Hillel that said, that's insane. What Moses is talking about in Deuteronomy chapter 24 is adultery. He's talking about infidelity within a marriage. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, there's this massive discussion going on. Are we with Hillel or are we with Shammai? Is it Hillel's way or Shammai's way? And Jesus goes, Shammai nailed this one, you guys. When Moses talked about divorce, he wasn't talking about any little reason that a wife displeased her husband. He was, they were talking about infidelity in a marriage. And so Jesus chimes in and he does what he does throughout the scriptures, Okay. He comes to the defense of women because they were the ones getting pushed down by this. They were the ones getting run over. They were the ones being wronged. And so Jesus comes and he says, no, this quote-unquote any cause divorce, which Hillel talked about, is absolute rubbish. What Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 is talking about is not any cause. It's talking about uniquely adultery. Okay, so take another deep breath. Because we all know people that have gotten divorced for reasons other than adultery. And many, some of you are sitting in this room. And we've heard some teaching around that. Where we go, well, is that, is that really the, the only time where divorce is an option? Is that it? 
Like, what about, what about abuse? Should, should a woman stay in that situation? It's not adultery. Should she just go have adultery, do adultery so that she can get divorced? Is that, is that the option? And I think we've heard some potentially inaccurate teaching on this, and I, I've been a part of that because we want to stay true to the scriptures, and we haven't really stepped back to ask the question, what is Jesus really talking about? So before I tell you what he's talking about, let me tell you what he's not talking about, okay? Here's what he's not saying. What he's not saying is that adultery is the only time divorce is an option, period. That's not what he's saying. And you go, well, Paulson, that's, that's, that's the way it reads. I, I get it. But what he's answering in this discussion is what is Moses talking about in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1? And he says, well, Moses right there is talking about adultery. That's what Moses is talking about. The question is, is that the only time in the Old Testament that divorce is discussed? Here's the answer. No, it's not. So he answers a question that's a common discussion amongst the rabbis, amongst the Pharisees, and he goes, this is what Moses is talking about. But there's, you also have in the Old Testament scriptures, you have Exodus chapter 21, verses 10 through 11, that talks about divorce as well. It, it says this, the context is an Israelite who marries a slave and then takes on a second wife in addition to her. That's for a whole nother message that will be just as fun. <laughs> But here's what it says. Here's what it says. If he, if this man marries another woman, he must not deprive the first of food, of clothing, and of marital rights. Some of your translations will say of conjugal love. He, he can't stop sleeping with his first wife because he likes his second wife better. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is, uh, she is to go free. She, she can leave the marriage without any payment of money. So she doesn't have to pay back any dowry. She can leave because she was wronged. And so all throughout the Jewish culture and all throughout the Jewish time, there's these, you have this Deuteronomy 24, which talks about adultery, and you have Exodus chapter 21 that talks about neglect. Did you know that in the Jewish marriage vows, they vow these three things to each other? I vow to clothe you. And so for the husband, it was providing enough money to have clothing. For the wife, it was, I'm going to be sewing. That's what I'm doing. I vow to feed you. I'm going to provide for the man. I'm going to provide enough money. This is a traditional household. Provide enough money to put bread on the table. And for the woman, she's going, and I'm going to prepare that meal. I vow that to you. I promise that to you. And I promise to you, this is in their vows. Can you imagine this standing one person in front of the other? I vow to make love to you often. <laughs> like, I always ask people if they want traditional vows or if they want to write their own. And I'm like, I'm starting to rethink my traditional vows a little bit. I, I promise to clothe you and feed you and make love to you often, right? I mean, that was the marriage vows that they took. And Jesus isn't talking about these, they weren't debated. They were just assumed within the Jewish culture that these are reasons that people exit a covenantal marriage. And what Jesus isn't saying in this teaching is that adultery is the only reason for divorce because he's not discussing Exodus chapter 21. 
This is a whole nother teaching and a whole nother debate that the scriptures don't talk about them having much in the New Testament. So here's the, the question. If you're going, Paulson, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I agree with you. Because I'm looking at Matthew chapter 5, and it says really clearly, I do not permit divorce except for adultery. Oh, okay. I I hear you. But my encouragement to you would be flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where the Apostle Paul says, oh, and abandonment. So here's the question. Did God change his mind in between Matthew 5 and 1 Corinthians 7? Let me, I'll just answer that for you. No, he didn't. Um, did, did Jesus get it wrong? Okay, th- that's an easy one, right? <laughs> Let me ask you again. Did Jesus get it wrong? No. Um, did Paul get it wrong? No, I don't think he did. I think they're talking about two different instances in two different cases, and we need to read the scriptures intelligently and go, how do these things fit together? Neither Paul nor Jesus, look up at me for a second, intends to give a complete list of where divorce is acceptable. They don't. If we want to figure out why divorce takes place, we need to figure out first what the covenant of marriage is about. And then we can figure out why divorce is even a quote-unquote option when God designed it to be one man, one woman for one life. That, that's, that's what we need to figure out. And I think Scott McKnight in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, says it well. Here's the way he says it. He says, if covenant love is commitment to be with someone and for someone as someone who's working unto divine ends, then marriages are destroyed when one partner refuses to be with the spouse or who becomes someone who's against that spouse. When a man obviously fails to be the husband that covenant love demands, or when a wife obviously fails to be the wife that covenant love demands, grounds for divorce may be present because the covenant is being destroyed. So, you may have heard some, what I would humbly submit to you is some potentially bad teaching on this. So much so that you have women who are being physically abused who stay in a marriage because they want to be true to the scriptures. And you have well-intentioned, typically men that would counsel them, stay in it, stay in it. Jesus only says divorce is an option when adultery is the case. And I just want to humbly submit to you that, that I don't think that that's what the Bible actually teaches. And when Jesus says you force her to commit adultery, what he's saying is, and you you go back and you read it, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, this any clause, Hillel, any, any reason she burned the toast, divorce and just sort of tosses her to the curb, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery, he's going, listen, the, the marriage isn't really void if you just tossed her aside without any violation of the marriage vow. And you read through it all throughout the scriptures. The only one who's capable of breaking the marriage vow is the one who was wronged, is the victim. Which opens up a whole nother line of questions, which is probably for a different sermon. 
So what Jesus is not saying, number one, he's not saying that adultery is the only case or reason for divorce ever, period. And he's not saying that anyone who remarries commits adultery. He's saying that if someone's tossed aside and then that man decides to go get another wife and and potentially do another any cause divorce, he's going, that person is committing adultery because they never really were divorced. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Um, Let me, uh, if it doesn't, let me recommend some reading for you. I I found um, this book to be the book I wish I, were, I wish I were given in seminary about this issue. It's called Divorce and Remarriage in the Church, and it's by David Instone Brewer, and it's wonderful. It's brilliant. It's gracious. And it actually explains the issues. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that giving your wife a certificate for divorce is a pretty low bar. That's what he's saying. He's going, let's, let's talk about this. Is that really our standard? That we could just toss a woman to the side and as long as we give her a certificate of divorce because she burned the toast, we're okay in God's eyes? And he says, no, that's not the case. And the Sermon on the Mount, the bar is being raised and raised and raised so that we're forced to go deeper and deeper into our souls and wrestle with what's on the inside. And Jesus wants to address what's on the inside. And what's on the inside is that we typically want to get our way. And what's on the inside is that we want it our way right now. And Jesus goes, that's not the way the marriage works. It's not the way that marriage works. What is Jesus teaching? That he did design marriage to last a lifetime. One man, one woman for life. But the reality is that doesn't always happen. And from the get-go, it didn't always happen. So Matthew chapter 19, which I would say is a companion passage to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says... The disciples ask him, ask Jesus, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Why did Moses do that? Now, the context, you can go back and read in verse 3, is, Jesus, are you for any cause divorce? Go, go read it. It's right there. It would help if it were capitalized in our Bibles. It's a discussion that they're having. And here's what Jesus replies. Jesus permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Here's what that means. There's two ways a heart can be hard. One, it can be hard in the person who is violating the covenant. Maybe they're sleeping around. Maybe they're neglecting. Uh, maybe they've abandoned and they refuse to repent and they refuse to come home. That, that, that can be one way. Another way a heart can be hardened is by a spouse who's been wronged and just can forgive but can't come to the place of reconciliation. They just, they just can't get there. It's been, the perpetration has been too long, it's been too painful, and it's too much. And what Jesus says is that that's why we have the quote-unquote provision of divorce. But it wasn't supposed to be this way from the beginning, he tells you. And then in verse 10, he says, the disciples said to him, oh my goodness, if we can't have any cause divorce, this situation between a husband and wife, it's better to not marry at all. They're going, that standard is really, really high, Jesus. If we can only divorce our wives if they violate the covenant... We shouldn't marry at all. It gives you an insight into the context that Jesus is speaking into. It's designed to last a lifetime. Second is reconciliation is always the goal until it's not possible. 
And it can be possible for two reasons. One, you feel like the options have been exhausted, or the second is a spouse has moved on. And they've gotten remarried. And God would say, don't break up that covenant in order to try to restore the first. Don't do that. Reconciliation is always the goal. And where Jesus taught against both Hillel and Shammai was that they would say that adultery always needs to end in divorce. And Jesus goes, no, 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 that's not the case. You could choose to forgive. Unless your heart's hard or their heart's hard, you can choose to forgive. You can reconcile. You can move forward even after adultery. And you can have a grace-filled, healthy marriage. It was a revolutionary thought in Jesus' day. But he's elevating, he's elevating the value of marriage because he knows that divorce is painful and he knows that God hates it because it tears apart lives. And he also knows, back to the beginning of our message, he knows that there's freedom in covenant. We think there's confinement, but there's freedom. Um, Admittedly, that was by far the longest point. If you're looking at your outline going, I didn't bring a snack today. (laughs) I I really felt like we needed to have that discussion because there's so much pain and baggage around that. And what Jesus wants to do is hold up covenant and go, think about the freedom in covenant. Think about the freedom in not having to decide or think about whether or not you're going to love. But you just do. You've already made that commitment. You, you, you decide to love based on the vow that you have made. And what Jesus wants to do is, especially in his day, but in, in our day and time too, he's moving men specifically, but I'd say men and women, towards a covenantal view of marriage rather than a consumerism view of marriage. It's not, hey, does this fit my needs right now? Is this making me happy in the moment? Am I pleased? Am I satisfied? Am I good? No, no, no. He wants us to have the freedom of going, I've decided that I've committed to this and I'm going to stick with my commitment. Till death doeth part in sickness and in health, I will count myself forever blessed as long as I live to have watched my father love my mom as she got really sick. And to, to see him hold to the vow that he made in marriage. And for two years as she got sick and uh, life slipped through her, her hands, and, and he continued to love. When there was nothing coming in return, I can assure you, except the knowledge of knowing that he was living exactly as Jesus had invited him to live. To have that picture in my marriage, I'm just going, man, when, when my wife's healthy, I want to treat her as well as my dad did when my mom was sick. And I just want to know, I, I just want you to know, there, I get it, there's a ton of pain in the room around this issue. There's pain for, on the side of people who've been walked out on, and you went, I wanted to fight for that, and I didn't get that option. I, I want you to know Jesus sees you, Jesus hears you, his compassion for you. And then there's, there's people, you've made decisions, maybe some of them you regret, and maybe some of them you don't, but you've, you've made decisions that have led to divorce, and there's, there's just, there's pain around that too. And I just, I want you to know, go read through the discussion where Jesus meets a woman at the well who is in her fifth marriage, and see the grace that he gives her, see the grace that he gives the woman in John chapter nine, John chapter eight, who's caught in the act of adultery, and he just showers his love down on us. See, Grace always meets us exactly where we're at and moves us forward. So wherever you're at this morning, know that God in his grace wants to meet you 
and he wants to move you forward. Okay. All right. So there's more. <clears throat> but I'm going to admittedly fly through this a little bit, okay? Here's what it says, verse 33. And again, you've heard it said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. This is a combination of teachings out of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And so Jesus is sort of clumping these all together. And he says, okay, you've heard it said, don't, don't break an oath that you've made to the Lord. He says, but I tell you, don't swear on an oath at all, either by heaven or by God, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair on your head white or black. So here's what was going on. There was a lot of discussion in Jesus's day about taking oaths and what is it that we swear on. And in the Ten Commandments, it says that we shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And so what the Jewish people did was they interpreted that as we can't swear on God's name. So they're like, ah, but the Bible didn't say anything about swearing on Jerusalem. And it didn't say anything about swearing on heaven or on earth or on our own heads. So I'll see you you cannot swear by the name of God, but I'll raise you. Let's swear on these other things. And Jesus goes, hey, why do we play this game? Like, don't you think it's a little silly? He goes, like, we could, we could address the fact that God wants us to keep our oaths, and that's what we can see on the surface, but there's something going on underneath. And he goes, let's go after that. Let's go after the heart issue. What's going on underneath? Well, really, it's manipulation to try to get our way. That's what's going on. I love the way that Dallas Willard wrote about this passage. He said this, Jesus goes right to the heart of why people swear oaths. He knew that they'd do it to impress others with their sincerity and reliability and thus gain acceptance of what they are saying and what they want. Here, catch this. It is a method of getting their way. Okay, so if you're part of the group that that whole discussion about divorce didn't really apply to you, welcome back. And... I would submit to you that Jesus' words here apply deeply. We may not be in an oath-giving and taking culture in the same way, but which one of us hasn't added a little something to our words in order to prop up our identity and make people think something about us that may or may not be true? What Jesus is talking about is reputation management with the words that we use to prop ourselves up and add to our resume just a little bit. And so he goes, there's immense freedom in covenant love, knowing that you're loved without having to decide, just knowing that there's some hedges around that and you're loved deeply within that. And he says, secondly, that there's freedom in honesty. See, they were adding to their words in order to manage and control the way people thought about them. So here's a few ways that we do this. I'll just throw out a few and you can chew on them and ask Jesus which one of them you may struggle with, if any. I think we do this through name dropping. Oh, I know so-and-so and that makes me a little bit more important. We do this through embellishment. I'll just be really honest with you. When I, um, when I have the chance to go and, um, and to teach at different conferences and different camps, inevitably every single person, not every, that's an exaggeration, a lot of the people there, 
come up to me and ask me, so how many people are in your church? So I have this like internal turmoil. Do I give them an Easter number? <laughs> or do I give them a July number? <laughs> Both are true. Right? It, b- both could be true based on what day you... So, like, I've had to work through when I'm in these situations. I, I always just go, all right, what, what's our average? And, and, I, and I, that's what I give them, right? But what they want to know is how important are you? And what I want to tell them is I'm really important. <laughs> Everything in me wants to say that. It's just not true, right? And so Jesus is saying, how about instead of trying to manage how people think about you, what if you're just honest? What would happen then? In trying to add words to what you say and maybe even bring God into it and introduce half-truths, in some circles it might sound like, well, God told me to do this. We're supposed to get married. And it's like, well, God didn't tell me that. So we sort of have to meet in the middle there. Or God told me I'm supposed to have this leadership position. Or I have a piece about this because, which very well may be true, but it also may just be we're adding words to make it seem like something is the case when it's actually not. And Jesus is saying, what, what would happen if you were just honest? And I think what he wants to do is protect community from the incipient uh, sickness of misleading people and eroding the very ground that we stand on with one another. That, and it's so easy to do, isn't it? So easy to do. And what it is, is it's fear covered up in words. If I can make you think something about me, then I'll be okay. And I think what Jesus might want to say to us this morning is that if you know that you're loved, that reckless love that we've just sung about, then you have nothing to prove. And if you have nothing to prove, you have nothing to defend. And if you have nothing to defend, look up at me for a moment, you are finally and fully free to love. And that's where he wants to get us. And he ends by saying this. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Like he's riffing off his previous point. Just yes or no. You don't need to take an oath. Just let your yes be yes and, and then let your no be no. Now, let's be honest with each other. We live in a state of perpetual FOMO in our culture, don't we? You know what that is? It's fear of missing out. And it's rampant right? So we will say yes to one engagement, but then we want to keep our options open just in case we get a better offer, right? Somebody invites us over for dinner. What are you having? It's like, oh, we're having spaghetti and meatballs. And we're like, yeah, I'll be there. But if somebody offers me steak, see you, meatballs, right? I'm there. And Jesus goes, oh man, you think by keeping all your options open that you're walking in the way of freedom, but how free would it be to not have to pray about whether or not you're going to say yes or no to that other one because you just said yes to this one? Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. In our day, in our culture, with our adventure seeking, the mountain is, or the grass is always greener, the mountain's a little bit higher, I'm going to leave this one in order to go there. And in our people pleasing, because that's the other side of this coin, we'll say yes to everybody because we don't want anybody to be mad at us. And then, oh, when it comes down to it, I really want to do this one, so I'm out. And Jesus goes, well, how about this? How about this? How about instead of trying to manage all that, you just stick with your commitments. 
Because I think what Jesus would say is freedom isn't found in keeping all of our options open. It's found in keeping our word. There's a lot of freedom there. There's a lot of freedom there. The freedom of covenant, the freedom of honesty, and the freedom of commitment. They go against the grain of what we think will actually lead us to life. And Jesus goes, no, 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 pause, take a step back. Don't let what's going on on the inside of your soul, the insecurities, the selfish pride, don't let that stand in the way of the life that I want to bring to you. So as we close, and Aaron's going to come back out and lead us in one last song, can I just impress upon you what I feel like is the gospel imperative here, and it's this. As we look at God, we step back from our lives for a second and look at our maker of it all. You do know that he's a covenantal God, don't you? That in the person and in the work of Jesus, he said, you are my people, you are chosen, you are holy, you are loved, and I am for you. And think about the implications of God being in covenant with us. He doesn't have to think about whether or not he's going to love us. He just does. He does because he's decided that that's what he is going to do. I love that. I will be your God and you will be my people is all throughout the entire scriptures and it's God's anthem. He is an oath-making God. His oath, his covenant, his love protects me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. It's his covenant. It's his oath. And Jesus is the oath of God. He's promising to be for us and be good to us and bless us. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is, look up at me, Jesus is the swear word of God. It's God swearing, I love you, I love you, I love you, I'm for you, I'm for you, I'm for you. You can't run too far, you can't get too dark, you can't get too pain. I am coming after you. Jesus is God's swear word. The limitless one becomes the limited one that we might become loved ones. That's our anthem. That's our anthem. And finally, God is a God of his word. And do you know what his yes is? His yes also has a name. His yes's name is Jesus. That all of the promises of God find their yes and their amen in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, chapter 1, verse 20. Would you stand with me as we close our time together? Friends, I'm convinced that for you and I to live in and experience the counterintuitive freedom of Jesus, we must first stay experience the reckless love of Jesus. And it's that love that provides the hedges for us. It's that love that holds us. It's that love that keeps us. It's that love that drives out fear. It's that love that allows us to follow through on our covenants and our commitments. And it's that love that frees us to be known when everything in us says hide or run. And so we're people that know that we're loved. And so we stay. So we stay. So maybe this week, maybe this week, you decide to take, if you're, if you're married and you're in covenant with somebody else, maybe you decide to take one step towards saying, this is something I deeply value, something that I want to honor. Maybe this week you just pay attention to the rhythms of your soul that want to embellish some of the things that are half true about you. And you catch yourself and you go, no, Jesus, I just want to say it as it is. 
as messy as it is, I just want to say it. And maybe this week you, you're thinking about saying no to something you already said yes to and you think, ah, that's not the freedom of commitment. Jesus, I don't need to pray about whether or not I'm going to do that. I already said I was. So I'm in. So I'm in. So Jesus, I pray for all my friends in this space. Lord, especially for those who carry a pain of divorce, where things didn't work out the way that they thought that they would. Maybe they were wronged or maybe they were the one wrong. Lord, I, I pray that they would just know your grace, your love this morning that holds them. Father, that we would be people of our word, that we'd be people of honesty in the, in the dark parts and in the good parts, that we'd invite people in in such a way that we could allow ourselves to be known, valued, and loved instead of hiding and trying to managing the expectations of people around us. Father, may we be people who do what we say we're going to do as a reflection of you, the God, who says what he's going to do and does it. Spirit, come, we pray. Amen.